Part Two, Chapter One of the Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One, by Edward Tyus Cook. Part Two, The Crimean War. 1854 to 1856. Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who, when brought among the tasks of real life, hath wrought upon the plan that pleased his boyish thought, or if an unexpected call succeed, come when it will, is equal to the need. Wordsworth. Chapter 1. The Call. October 1854 Not for delectation sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and palling, not for us the tame enjoyment, pioneers, O oh, pioneers. Walt Whitman On September 20, the Battle of the Alma was fought, and the country, as Greville noted, was in a fever of excitement. The disembarkation of the Allied British and French forces for the invasion of the Crimea had begun on the 14th. Their advance was not resisted until they reached the bank of the Alma, where the Russian commander was awaiting attack, in so strong a position that he was confident of victory. In less than three hours, the Allied troops had driven the enemy from every part of the ground. Lord Raglan, the commander of the forces, congratulated the troops on the brilliant success that attended their unrivaled efforts in the battle, on which occasion they carried a most formidable position, defended by large masses of Russian infantry, and a most powerful and numerous artillery. The river which the Russian commander had hoped to make the grave of the invaders became famous in the annals of British valor. Thou on England's banners blazoned with the famous fields of old, Shalt where other fields are winning, wave above the brave and bold. And our sons unborn shall nerve them for some great deed to be done, By that twentieth of September when the Alma's heights were won. O thou river, dear forever, to the gallant, to the free, Alma, roll thy waters proudly, proudly roll them to the sea. Nearly forty years had passed since the British army had been engaged in European warfare. The Battle of the Alma, though it disclosed little tactical skill, and though it was not followed up as it might have been, had at any rate shown the desperate courage of the British soldier. The note of exultation which inspired the verses of Archbishop Trench expressed the popular mood. Presently there was a change. The number of killed and wounded was very large, but though many homes were thrown into mourning, it was felt, in the words of the official bulletin, that such a victory could not be achieved without a considerable sacrifice. The country did not at the time grudge the sacrifice, but Lord Raglan's dispatch was followed by another. The Crimean War was the first in which the special correspondent played a conspicuous part, and the dispatches sent to the Times by Mr. William Howard Russell availed even to overthrow a ministry. In the Times of October 9, attention was drawn to the futility of the nursing arrangements on the British side. The old pensioners who had been sent out for such service were not of the slightest use. The soldiers had to attend upon each other. 
On the 12th, a long letter from our special correspondent, dated Constantinople, September 30, ended with the following passage. It is with feelings of surprise and anger that the public will learn that no sufficient preparations have been made for the proper care of the wounded. Not only are there not sufficient surgeons, that it might be urged was unavoidable. Not only are there no dressers and nurses, that might be a defective system for which no one is to blame. But what will be said when it is known that there is not even linen to make bandages for the wounded? The greatest commiseration prevails for the sufferings of the unhappy inmates of Scutari, and every family is giving sheets and old garments to supply their wants. But why could not this clearly foreseen want have been supplied? Can it be said that the Battle of the Alma has been an event to take the world by surprise? Has not the expedition to the Crimea been the talk of the last four months? And when the Turks gave up to our use the vast barracks to form a hospital and depot, was it not on the ground that the loss of the English troops was sure to be considerable when engaged in so dangerous an enterprise? And yet, after the troops have been six months in the country, there is no preparation for the commonest surgical operations. Not only are the men kept in some cases for a week without the hand of a medical man coming near their wounds, not only are they left to expire in agony, unheeded and shaken off, though catching desperately at the surgeon whenever he makes his rounds through the fetid ship. But now, when they are placed in the spacious building, where we were led to believe that everything was ready which could ease their pain or facilitate their recovery, it is found that the commonest appliances of a workhouse sick ward are wanting, and that the men must die through the medical staff of the British Army, having forgotten that old rags are necessary for the dressing of wounds. If Parliament were sitting, some notice would probably be taken of these facts, which are notorious and have excited much concern. As it is, it rests with the government to make inquiries into the conduct of those who have so greatly neglected their duty. On the following day, a further letter from the special correspondent was published. It is impossible, he wrote, for anyone to see the melancholy sights of the last few days without feelings of surprise and indignation at the deficiencies of our medical system. The manner in which the sick and wounded are treated is worthy only of the savages of Dahomey. The worn-out pensioners who were brought as an ambulance corps are totally useless, and not only are surgeons not to be had, but there are no dressers or nurses to carry out the surgeon's directions and to attend on the sick during the intervals between his visits. Here the French are greatly our superiors. Their medical arrangements are extremely good, their surgeons more numerous, and they have also the help of the Sisters of Charity, who have accompanied the expedition in incredible numbers. These devoted women are excellent nurses. These scathing attacks changed the mood of the country. There was still exultation in victory, and still readiness to pay its price. But the special correspondent's charges of neglect towards the sick and wounded raised a feeling of bitter resentment, of resentment against the authorities, but also of pity for the victims. The Times accompanied the special correspondent's letter on October 12 by a leading article making appeal to its readers, who were sitting comfortably at home, to bestir themselves and render such help as might be possible to the soldiers in the East. A letter was published next day from Sir Robert Peel, who had enclosed 200 pounds to start a fund for supplying the sick and wounded with comforts. 
other contributions were quickly forthcoming, and on October 14, a letter was published asking, Why have we no Sisters of Charity? There are numbers of able-bodied and tender-hearted English women who would joyfully and with alacrity go out to devote themselves to nursing the sick and wounded, if they could be associated for that purpose and placed under proper protection. 2. There were those among the ladies of England who had not waited to be stung into action by such appeals. On the first news of the failure of the British nursing arrangements, they had asked themselves whether they might not help, not merely by money, but by personal service. One of the first to move was Lady Maria Forrester. She must have read and marked the letter in the Times on October 9, for already by October 11 she had placed herself in communication with Miss Nightingale, offering money to send out some trained nurses. I was so anxious something should be done, she said to Lady Verney, that I would have gone myself, only I knew that I should not have been the slightest use. Happily, the minds of those who could be of the greatest use were moving in the same direction. If a party of women nurses were to be sent out to the East with any prospect of success, there were two persons in England whose cooperation was essential, and by fortunate chance, they were personal friends. One was Mr. Sidney Herbert, the secretary at war. The preposition which I have placed in italics must be noted. The reader would not thank me for entering at length into all the intricacies of war office organization, disorganization, and reorganization which went on during the Crimean War and have continued to our own day. But this much it is necessary to remember, that in 1854 there was a secretary for war, the Duke of Newcastle, and a secretary at war, Mr. Sidney Herbert. The curious part of the arrangement was that the secretary at war had nothing to do with war as such. He was, technically, only a financial and accounting official. But Mr. Sidney Herbert, in the emergency created by the Crimean War, stepped courageously beyond the strict bounds of his office. He had already shown himself by many beneficent measures of practical reform to be the soldier's friend. He was deeply interested, as we have heard, in the care of the sick. He knew how overworked was his colleague, the Duke of Newcastle, and in this matter of hospitals he assumed the position of volunteer delegate of the Secretary of State. I wish, wrote Mr. Gladstone to Monckton Milnes, October 15, 1855, that some one of the thousand who in prose justly celebrate Miss Nightingale would say a single word for the man of routine who devised and projected her going. Lord Stanmore has said not a word, but a volume in that sense. What was truly admirable was the man of routine's bold departure from routine. The employment of female nurses in the army was in this country entirely novel. It would probably excite some jealousy in the medical profession. It was sure to be criticized by the military men. The cabinet had much else to think of. The Duke of Newcastle had more on his hands than any one human being could properly accomplish. Mr. Herbert, from his influence in the cabinet, from his winning manner and general popularity, was the man to carry through the new departure. He had pondered long over the problems of nursing, both in military hospitals and in civil life. He could see no reason why a task which in civil life was entrusted almost exclusively to women should, in the case of military hospitals, be confined to men. The French government had sent out fifty Sisters of Mercy. 
Mr. Herbert could see no reason why England should not do something of a like kind. He determined to make the experiment. He was strengthened in his resolve by the fact that he was intimately acquainted with the character and the powers of the second indispensable person. He knew Miss Florence Nightingale. The preceding part of this volume has shown by what circuit first her life had been one long preparation for precisely such work as was now wanted. She and the minister had read the dispatch in the Times with equal, if different, interest. To Mr. Herbert, it came as a call for something to be done, if the ministry were to avoid dangerous criticism. And to this motive, which must rightly actuate every minister, there was added the conscience of a high-minded man, sincerely and eagerly anxious to do all that was possible to improve the treatment of the sick and wounded soldiers. To Miss Nightingale, as she read the dispatch, and the stirring appeal which accompanied it, the words came with something of the force of a call from above. For nearly ten years of her life she had consciously yearned, and half-consciously for a much larger period, after ample scope in which to exercise her power of organization, and her desire to serve the sick and suffering. During many of those years she had been training herself so as to be ready to use her opportunity when it should occur and here was the opportunity at hand, in which patriotism confirmed her personal aspirations. God's good time had come. The minds of the minister and of Miss Nightingale were kindled together. They reached the flashpoint of action at almost an identical moment. Private initiative forestalled official overtures only by a few hours. Working in harmony, they carried the scheme into operation with an unparalleled rapidity. End of section 15.